If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 4th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York. Welcome. On this outing, our show celebrates Hispanic Heritage Month, with a special Gaitino report. And remember Matthew Shepard on the 23rd anniversary of his murder. On the night of October 6, 1998, Matthew Wayne Shepard, a gay student at the University of Wyoming, was beaten, tortured, and left to die. Tonight, we talked to his high school bestie, his mom Judy, and his dad Dennis, about the legacy of the kid they loved and lost. First up, a great narrative film on the stream, The Matthew Shepard Story. Matthew Wayne Shepard died in Laramie, Wyoming, on the morning of October 12, 1998, from severe injuries due to a brutal beating and torture. He was 21 years old. He was gay. The NBC television network, with the cooperation of Matthew's parents, has produced a film about his life and his death. It's called The Matthew Shepard Story. The defense has trotted out a lot of wild theories about why Aaron McKinney killed Matthew Shepard. First, it was gay panic, as if Matthew Shepard, all five foot two inches and 105 pounds of him, struck such terror into Aaron McKinney and his friend that they had to kill him. Then, when that was thrown out by the court, all of a sudden, it was robbery. Well, what is it? Is it gay panic or robbery? It can't be both. Now, they're begging for your sympathy. Poor Aaron McKinney, not that bright, unhappy, uh, dabbling in drugs and alcohol. That man lured Matthew Shepard to the middle of nowhere, tied him to a fence, then beat him senseless with the butt of a foot-long pistol, and now he has the gall to ask for your sympathy? I am Judy Shepard. I am the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation and the mother of Matthew Shepard. Matt came out to me when he was 18, and when he told me, I asked him what took him so long to tell me, because I'd sort of been working on that idea for about 10 years and had a little time to do some research and some investigation, and at that time, not much information was positive. So we were very fearful for his safety and his happiness. We thought, you know, he would never be happy. He would always be afraid 
there would always be the possibility of losing his job or losing his housing or not getting housing or never finding a committed partner. We were very afraid. But there were darker fears to come. One of the surprises of the film is that Matthew Shepard had been brutalized before. On a class trip to Morocco, he was gang-raped. The act of rape itself is really more about power and humiliation than it is about any kind of sex or affection. It's all about power and humiliation, and it's just one more form of beating down. My sweetheart. Are you okay? Oh, sweetheart. They raped me, Mom. Okay. I know, baby. I wanted to tell you. Today, Judy Shepard is a full-time activist for tolerance. When he died and we began to be in touch with the community and we were educated into what they were facing still, which was equal job opportunities, housing opportunities, even loan opportunities. We were just outraged. You know, we just thought civil rights meant everybody was included. And to find out that that wasn't the case was really very frustrating. So since Matthew has died and the trials are over, Dennis and I have been speaking out about uh, equality issues, legislatively in particular, and just trying to make people realize that people are people. These things don't define who we are. They don't define every aspect of our lives. And we're just trying to make the general public at large aware of that. And when I speak, yes, I do get mostly the choir, but they talk to people and they talk to people, and the ripples just continue on. One of the men who killed Matthew Shepard was an Eagle Scout. The Boy Scouts would not have welcomed her son, and the irony isn't lost on Judy Shepard. The official policy of the Boy Scouts encourages prejudice, and not just against gays, but religion and gender. What they are saying to their young people is that it's okay. It's okay to feel prejudice and hate against a section of our community. Well, it's not okay. And the very fact that some institutions, churches, whatever, continue this prejudice, in particular against the gay community, makes society at whole think that it's okay to hate and perpetrate violence against them, that no one will care. My name is Shane Meyer, and I portray Matthew Shepard in The Matthew Shepard Story, which uh, is set to air on NBC. I knew that it was going to be an extremely difficult subject matter to deal with, and I wanted to do it right. A, because I knew that it's going to be watched worldwide, and B, Judy Shepard, hey man, I'm portraying her son. He was the opposite of what these people were that did this to him. He was not a mean person. He was a very warm person. He was happy to be alive. He was full of positive energy. He was always willing to accept different people in his life. He was always very kind to people that he didn't know. He was always the, the peacemaker. He was always trying to make peace with two people that were disagreeing with each other. He was not a big guy. He's not a very intimidating fellow. He's not six foot eight. He was he was five foot two, five foot three, 110 pounds. For this kind of thing to happen to him, he was almost crucified on this fence in the middle of beautiful Wyoming. And there's another scene in the movie where Stalker, portraying Judy Shepard, turns around and looks at where he died, and she says, this is the last thing he saw. And the camera shows a beautiful, beautiful countryside with the beautiful, gorgeous Wyoming sunset setting in the background, and, and that's how he died. And that's just another irony of it, you know? You know it's okay. I mean, we're gay, too. 
Man, I, I thought you guys were gonna jump me. No, what? Well, you, you followed me in here and I stopped. Well, I'm not gonna tell you out there. No, no, I, I guess not. Uh, hey, Lesson, it was nice meeting you guys. Take off. Yeah, yeah, okay then. What, you leaving already? It's early. Yeah, you know, I got class tomorrow and I'm tired. College boy, right? Good for you, man. Uh, hey, you know, we could give you a ride home if you want. Really? Yeah, it's not a big deal or anything. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. All right, then. The Matthew Shepard story stars Shane Meyer as Matthew, with Sam Waterston and Stockard Channing as Judy and Dennis Shepard. It airs Saturday, March 16th on NBC. For information on the Matthew Shepard Foundation, point your internet browser to www.matthewshepard.org. This has been Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Judy Shepard. Since Matthew's death, his father Dennis and I have started the Matthew Shepard Foundation. The goal of that foundation is to educate and raise awareness. After Matthew's death, we discovered we knew very little about what was going on in the world regarding hate and discrimination. We also discovered how powerful one person can be in making changes in our world. I want you to know that you too can make a difference if you choose to make the commitment. You can change the world. You can do it as an individual. You can do it as part of a group. You just need to make the choice. Hate is a learned behavior, and we can unlearn that behavior. We can live our lives in love if we make the choice. If you get the message, share it. Don't keep it. And thank you again for listening. Doesn't my mother cry like everyone? My father grieves for his lonely son. And isn't the air in my lungs the same The Matthew Shepard story is free to stream on Peacock, YouTube, Tubi, and Vudu, or rent on Amazon Prime. The next film is a documentary. The victim of what many people say was a hate crime in Wyoming this morning has died. 21-year-old Matthew Shepard was found beaten and unconscious last week near the University of Wyoming. Shepard was gay. Millions of people around the world see Matthew Shepard as a gay rights icon. And his brutal 1998 murder was a crystallizing moment in the crusade for LGBT equality. But symbols aren't flesh and blood. Matt was. He was five foot two inches tall. He weighed just 105 pounds. When he died, he still had braces. What were his likes, his dislikes? What kind of person was he? A new documentary made by one of his closest high school friends, with the cooperation of his parents, answers that question. Hello, I'm Michelle Husway, the director of Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father. Michelle, why make the documentary now? I think I just didn't have the courage until now. I, I don't have a really simplistic answer for it. It's just when Matt died, I was only 19, and it was really kind of confusing for me. You know, I was just figuring out my own life and the world around me, and suddenly I realized that the world was a very cruel place. So it was very, very devastating, and it just took me many, many, many years to kind of be able to even talk about Matt and my friendship with him without just crying, unfortunately. So I think it's just a lack of courage on my part and being so emotionally confused about how someone who was so gentle and kind could be taken away in such a horrific fashion. 
So it, it honestly, the grief was so profound for all of us that it took 12 years for us to even begin embarking on a project like this. What was he like in high school? When I first met Matt, he was really quite shy, I think. I think he was homesick, as we all were. But you could tell that there was something more there. So we got to know each other really well through theater. And, you know, when you do a lot of productions, you spend a lot of time together. And I quickly learned he had a really wicked sense of humor. And he just blossomed, I think, in our school. And he was really gregarious and, and just generous and loved everyone. And I I think he was kind of like the unofficial mayor of our school. He just loved everyone and not only the students, like the teachers and, and the, the staff, you know, the people who would clean up the classrooms and the cafeteria and stuff. Everyone loved him. He was so kind and so big hearted. And that's really unique. Now that I'm older, I can look back and just really think about Wow, like you don't really meet people like that very often. What is the difference between Matthew Shepard and Matt Shepard? I always think of Matthew and Matt as two separate things. You know, Matthew is this gay rights icon who's the face of the inequality and violence that the LGBT community faces on a daily basis. But then Matt is something very precious to us. He was a human being. He was a son, a brother, a really, really good friend, and that's very sacred. But now with the time and the perspective, we just felt it was very important to share that human side of him and, and show the world that behind the headline, there was a real person, and he left behind a group of people that still miss him. So I, I don't know. I just, you have these great ideas and politics and activism, but at the heart of it all, it's we're all human beings. So it was just really important for me to try and have people connect to Matt again in that way, or maybe for the first time in that way. I don't know who Matthew Shepard is. All I know is my son, Matt, with his highs and his lows and his smile and his love for politics and theater and always being able to, to meet people and make them instantly friends of his. The Matthew Shepard is something that was being created by the media and by people inside and outside the gay community who needed a symbol. And he became a symbol with the way that, that he looked and his being just a ordinary country kid who ended up going overseas to school and blossomed with his ability to speak multiple languages and his size his love of the theater, politics, people. Everybody could see something in him that related to them. So he became the symbol of the abuse and the lack of equality that the straight community enjoyed. And the struggle that came because of that, the way he died and, and the way he had lived and his friends and everything, it just became a natural for the media to pick up on it. That's what surprised us the most. Of all the hate crime victims in the gay community over the years, Matt was the one who ended up uh, as the forefront. And the transition into the discussions that we have now. You went from grieving father to LGBT activist very quickly. What have you learned over these last 17 years? The thing I've learned is how close-minded people are, just like they were with interracial marriage and civil rights but the abuse, 
the intolerance and the lack of equality that the gay community was receiving through these years has just been a real eye-opener to both Judy and myself. We just didn't realize it. And I think that's what's caused a lot of the change. A lot of the straight community didn't realize that. They thought, well, they're Americans. They have all the same rights. It turns out they didn't. They couldn't adopt. They couldn't get married. They couldn't inherit. They couldn't have hospital privileges. None of that that the straight community takes for granted. How can you say you're an American citizen and not have the same rights? You pay the same taxes. Did anything surprise you watching this film? We learned a couple things that we were surprised about. One of them was that he was afraid to tell us he was gay, even though we thought we had an open relationship with the kids. I think it was just due to the culture of the country and, and just the whole thing. The other thing that was a surprise was that he journaled so much, and it was so introspective, the things that he was concerned about. And his letters to his friends, that was pretty amazing that he was so prolific a writer but he just would never send them out. They were all in his possessions that we would be cleaned out his apartment until Michelle came along. We just didn't want to open those up and look what was in there because we didn't want to get to the point where there's gum wrappers and stuff. Let's throw that away. Because anytime you took something like that and threw it away, you were throwing away a part of Matt. So we just left it there so that if somebody like Michelle wanted to come and, and do research and do a movie or a book that we approved of or something like that. We had the materials there, just like we did all the letters that came in when Matt was in the hospital and afterwards. That became part of the uh, display that they showed at Ford Theater when they did the Laramie Project, and that display is now being given to the foundation, and we send it around the country with various productions of the Laramie Project. But it all came in at the same time just... It's part of Matt that we, we don't want to lose. And it, it's hard to watch. And again, it's, it's great to see him again. It's bittersweet that we had to make this film. I really wish... <laughs> Sorry. Take your time. It's hard. We've been doing press a lot. So. <laughs> Take your time. No, I just wish we never had to make this film. It's important to me as his friend that people get to know him as someone other than just a victim. He was so much more. <laughs> Sorry. I just want people to know that he was a good person and he was so much more than the way in which he died. Sorry. This has been a conversation with Matt's dad, Dennis Shepard, and his high school friend, documentarian Michelle Hosway. Find more information on her film at NatShepardIsAFriendOfMine.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. Is free to stream on Amazon Prime and Tubi or rent on YouTube. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Hangover House, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Dashing, sophisticated, and self-confident, adventurer Richard Halliburton wanted a retreat for himself and companion Paul Mooney as a home base between expeditions. In 1937, he commissioned young architect William Levy to create a modern concrete, steel, and glass house atop a steep hill with sweeping ocean views of Laguna Beach, California. According to the Laguna Beach Historical Society, the nickname Hangover House 
reflects its position on a 300-foot cliff. A marvel of 1930s modern architecture, the Hangover House contained a spacious living room and dining room and three bedrooms. Halliburton's bedroom featured a wall-sized map of the world. But Halliburton and Mooney didn't get much time to spend in the house because both died at sea in 1939. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Andrew Barnes. This is Judy Shepard, author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie and A World Transformed. And you are listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Over the years, Judy Shepard has been a frequent and beloved guest on IMRU. She is the founding president of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, Matthew's mom, and author of The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie, and A World Transformed. Judy Shepard hates October. The sixth day of that month marks the night her 21-year-old son, Matthew, was tied to a fence in Laramie, Wyoming, and brutally beaten. Within a week, on October 12, 1998, he died of those injuries. Today, the name Matthew Shepard is synonymous with gay rights, but before his grisly murder, Matt was simply Judy's son. And in her new book, Judy talks about loss, memories of her boy, their life as a typical American family, and that pivotal event on a cold night in a small college town that changed everything she knew. This is Judy Shepard, author of Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder, and the World Transformed. Why did you decide to write this book now? I began to feel like people who kept calling my Matt Matthew actually needed to meet Matt. He was seemed so one-dimensional and perfect to those who called him Matthew, so it was a disservice to Matt, actually. So I wanted to introduce them to Matt. He was never Matthew to us. He was always Matt, Matty, Mateo, Matouche, but never Matthew. Did you find the process painful, or was it cathartic? Well, I think it was probably both. It was painful to have to go back to those memories because we hadn't been there in a long time. But cathartic because once we started remembering things, other memories began to come to us. It was like opening the floodgates, and uh, we remembered the painful things, but we also remembered some pretty remarkable things. What kind of feedback have you been getting? What are people asking? Well, the book is going really great. The comment I hear most often is, it feels like you're reading the story to me in my living room. I, I wanted it to be in my voice. I wanted it to feel conversational, not like I'm talking at you, but I'm talking with you. Uh, and I think I've succeeded at that. In the book, you talk about the difficulty of having to share Matt with the rest of the country. Has that changed? How, how has it changed? Uh, you know, there's, we've had many family discussions about how much of Matt or ourselves we feel we need to share. And there's some things we've wanted to keep just to us. So we don't, we, there's just some things about Matt that we don't feel are necessary to share that we just want to keep for ourselves. And, and things about us, too. That we just don't feel the world needs to know everything. So we tell stories we think are relevant, meaningful to um, the people who are interested in Matt's life. Can you talk about your son, Logan? Yeah, we made a real effort to not talk about Logan when we were doing press at the beginning because we didn't want anybody seeking him out, press or strangers or anybody. 
So a lot of people actually think Matt was an only child, but he had a younger brother, four years younger. Logan now works for the Matthew Shepard Foundation in Denver. And it must be a challenge to devote so much time to protecting Matt's legacy while making your other son feel like he's not being overshadowed. It's been hard. It's been a process for him, for sure. He writes a blog on, on our, one of our websites, matthewsplace.com, and he wrote about that process last year. And If anybody's interested, they should go visit matthewsplace.com. Your book is a very realistic portrayal of a teenage kid, and it's not always flattering. What was your Matt like? He was funny, smart, loved people, laughed a lot, felt very empathetic and sympathetic with his friends and his peers. They trusted him implicitly. They loved him. They liked to be around him. Everybody loved Matt. And when did you suspect he might be gay? When he was about eight. His favorite costume at Halloween was uh, Dolly Parton, three years in a row. So I began to think, well, maybe I should pay attention to what's going on here. I know that may sound stereotypical. I, I don't mean it to, but it just made me aware. What have been the highlights for you this year? Well, one of the things for sure was the hate crime bill is now ready for the president's signature. That's got to be the highlight. A couple of weeks ago, mid-October, the president addressed the human rights campaign dinner. That was pretty amazing. He was so articulate and very outspoken about what he felt the gay community needed, wanted, and what he could do to help. The Equality March in D.C. was fantastic. The Matthew Shepard Foundation had its annual gala mid-October. It's been crazy. The year as a whole has just been really busy and good things happening. There were some uh, negative things. Tell me about Virginia Fox. Well, she's the most interesting woman. I've never met her in person, but she is a congresswoman from North Carolina, and during the uh, House debate on the hate crime bill in early spring, she said on the floor that what happened to Matt was a hoax, raised quite a furor on the Internet and among the community. And she wrote, she wrote me a letter and apologized, but she apologized for her choice of words, not really for the sentiment. I felt it was really kind of an empty apology. You know, I don't know who did her research or what they were thinking that they were going to say by uh, what happened to Matt was a hoax, but... A lot of people were so outraged that they donated money to the foundation, so that was not an all-bad thing. In the book, you talk about not being completely convinced of the need for the bill at first. So what did you mean by that? We know laws don't prevent crimes. What I want this bill to do is to educate people. I want people to acknowledge that these crimes happen in the gay community, that they are very violent and prevalent, and they are going up as are hate crimes committed because of many other reasons. But we know it's not going to stop anything. People aren't going to stop in the middle and go, oh, wait, there's a law against this now, specifically meant to protect the gay community. They couldn't have done anything more to the killers of Matt. But what I wanted to do is educate people. And I wanted to tell people that this is a matter of respect and recognition, acknowledgement of the gay community. I think all crimes have an element of hate crime. But what this particular one is going to do is send a message. Many people saw Matt's death as a turning point. Never again. But Matt wasn't the last gay person to die at the hands of an attacker. Have things gotten better? What's changed? Well, I guess in relation to Matt, we don't read about it. We may read about the first sensational part of the crime, but we never hear how it ends. We don't hear what's going on in the middle. And many of them never make it beyond the local media. It's not a national or even a regional thing anymore, and we all need to know that's going on, we might start to think it's not happening anymore, and it surely is. How's the foundation doing? The foundation is doing really well. We're suffering like all nonprofits right now because the economy being 
sort of squishy, but I have a great staff, small, but very efficient, very committed and passionate about what they're doing. And we're located in Denver. We do some really remarkable things for how small we are. And is there a website? There is. There are actually two. MatthewShepherd.org is the website about the foundation. And Matthew'sPlace.com is a website structured for young people between the ages of 12 and probably 20, 20-something. It's a very dynamic site. We're in the midst of revamping the site so we can upload videos and music and pictures on the website. We want it to be interactive, more interactive, and we're going to have chats and those kinds of things, but that's a little bit into the future. Judy, what do you want the readers to take away from this book? Well, you know, there's a variety of people that I hope are going to read it, and I want them to understand that our children should always be the most important part of our lives and to never, ever let a day go by without letting them know how much we love them and to not ever separate on bad words or bad terms. You never know what's going to happen within minutes of being apart. And for parents of gay kids, Sometimes it's a real challenge, but we need to be there for them all the time. We can't just abandon them because they're gay. They're our children, and they're born that way, and they happen to be gay. It doesn't define them. I want all parents to understand that their children are the most important thing. One of the things that frightens me, we had a a kid in here who was 13, and he'd come out to his sister like three years before when he was 10. Mm -hmm. And luckily he has some amazing supportive parents. Good. But people are coming out younger and younger, and that's not always the case. They're coming out younger because now they're more self-aware. There's so much more information out there, and they know they're not alone because of the Internet. And and uh, the gay community is being depicted in a positive, realistic way now in the popular media. So they're just more self-aware. The sad thing is, five years ago, the average age of the LGBT homeless young person was 19, and now it's 14. So there's a whole new set of issues now that we have to address, and there's more of them. But we know also that the number of families rejecting their children is down, so that's good. When a death occurs, especially when it's violent or traumatic, families are often unable to stay together. They can't deal with emotions and responses. As a family unit, how did you keep your family cohesive through all this? I think we realized that from the beginning that that was a possibility, and I think we made an extra an extra effort to talk about all kinds of things when they came up, no matter how irrelevant they seemed at the time. Plus, I don't know if it's a negative or a positive, but because we didn't actually grieve together, we sort of dealt with it in our own way, in our own time, maybe in a way that was better for us. We weren't any of us living together when we were grieving, and Dennis stayed in Saudi to work, and I was in the United States doing this work, and Logan was in school. So, And we never—there was no blame. Sometimes in families who are torn apart by a violent death, they might tend to blame one or the other for allowing it to happen. There was never any blame involved in in what happened to Matt. We all felt like we were in a really good place with him uh, when we lost him, and there wasn't anything to blame each other for. One of the surprises to— some people in reading the book, is Laramie wasn't the first time Matt was attacked. He was on a senior trip from his boarding school in Morocco and was assaulted by three or four, I can't remember now, uh, local men in Morocco, raped and and left. It was, of course, a life-altering experience for Matt and, and us. He never really lost the posture of a victim before he died. We thought he was on the road to recover when he went back to Laramie, but... Up until then, he was his life was very much changed. Tell me about the updated play. 
10 years ago, there was a play called The Laramie Project, and the original writers, Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project, went to Laramie again and re-interviewed many of the same people 10 years later. And they put together a new play called uh, The Laramie Project 10 years later, I, I think. It's a remarkable piece of how much has changed and not changed in Laramie. He actually interviewed uh, McKinney and Henderson as well. It's an eye-opening piece of work, as was the original. It illustrates how much Wyoming is like the rest of the country, kind of changed at the same pace of acceptance and non-acceptance. I think it just proves to everybody we're just not that different in Wyoming. How have the people of Wyoming changed? I think they were forced to acknowledge their own feelings about the gay community. I think there was no more sitting on the fence, live and let live kind of. You either had to say yes, you were in favor of gay rights, or no, you opposed it. There was no middle ground anymore. I think that was the biggest change. There's been more education and more public dialogue. But I, I think that's just the same as everywhere else. When you were on Ellen last week, you had a great story about coming out. Oh. Do we count that? I did some work with a wonderful young man from Ohio State University. And I tell this story when I travel because it illustrates just how far we've come. He was out on campus, but not at home. So one weekend he drove home, parked his car in the driveway, and left the car running. And he went inside, and his mom was sitting on the couch knitting or crocheting or something. And his dad was downstairs doing whatever he was doing downstairs. And this young man went in, and he said to his mom, I'm here to tell you that I'm gay. And she looked up at him, and then she looked down the stairs and yelled to her husband, I win the bet. And I love that story because I think it so illustrates how far we've come. And, you know, I think moms know. I think it's a mom thing. I think, in fact, I think all loved ones know in the back of their mind that the people they love are, are gay, and bringing it to the front of your mind is the hard part. And what's left to do now? You've got the hate crimes passed? It is passed. We're waiting for the president's signature. What we have to do now is build on this first piece of positive, federally passed gay legislation, work on to Don't Ask, Don't Tell, DOMA, employment non-discrimination, all-inclusive. There's still work to be done. We can't just stop now because we have a lot further to go, and I think the road is just going to get more difficult. People are going to start pushing back against us now. They keep saying, well, the hate crime bill is going to be the easy part. Well, it took us 11 years to get it done. Even with the eight years of the Bush administration, it still took a long time. What is the thing that people most misunderstand about Judy Shepard? Well, I think they must think that I'm an extrovert, that public speaking is no big deal, that all of this public interaction is no big deal, but it, I'm an introvert off the scale. This is a, a challenge for me. I never aspired to be a spokesperson for anything. I never aspired to be at the podium making the remarks at anything. Uh, if this hadn't happened to Matt, I'd be the P-flag mom making cookies, not the one at the podium urging people on. I would be deeply involved in the mission, but definitely behind the scenes. Do you ever feel like you're preaching to the choir? When I started doing the lecture tour, my husband Dennis said, do you ever worry that your audience is nothing but the choir? And I said, well, nobody's going to come who doesn't agree with what we're trying to accomplish. And he said, that's okay, because even the choir needs to rehearse. Thank you, Judy. This has been a conversation with Judy Shepard. Her book, The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie, and A World Transformed, is from Hudson Street Press. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Judy Shepard. I want you to know that you too can make a difference if you choose to make the commitment. You can change the world. You can do it as an individual. You can do it as part of a group. You just need to make the choice. Hate is a learned behavior, and we can unlearn that behavior. We can live our lives in love 
if we make the choice. If you get the message, share it. Don't keep it. And thank you again for listening. Doesn't my mother cry like everyone? My father grieves for his lonely sons. And isn't the air in my lungs the same air you breathe? So who cares? Whose arms are more wrapped up in? Who cares? Whose eyes have seen myself? Don't go away. We'll be right back with the Gatino Report after this quick break. Richard Halliburton's Legacy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known during his time as the most traveled man alive, Richard Halliburton lived for his next great adventure. Through his expeditions and writings about them, he inspired several generations of young Americans by making history and geography subjects of great interest. Halliburton brought readers to different lands and different times, writing of sleeping atop a pyramid, living among the French Foreign Legion, and even crossing the Alps on elephant back, and reenacting Robinson Crusoe's island experience. Halliburton died doing what he liked best. His vessel disappeared during a typhoon while crossing the Pacific in 1939. His last contact by radio was southerly gales, squalls, lee rail underwater, wet bunks, hard tack, bully beef, wish you were here instead of me. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Andrew Barnes. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Neil Schleifer, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next, in honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, we present a very special Gatino report. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gatino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my very special guest, an American hero, my personal hero, a woman on a lifelong journey as a community organizer and social justice activist. Dolores Huerta has been an iconic civil rights leader for more than 50 years and still going strong. Most know she co-founded with Cesar Chavez the United Farm Workers Union. Some may not know Dolores has long been a champion for the LGBTQ community, a community that supported Dolores and Cesar in the earliest and most dangerous days of the UFW. Welcome, Dolores. Thank you so much for being on the Gaytino Report. Oh, I love it. Did we ever think we'd see a day when we have a radio show called The Gaytino? <laughs> well, I'm sure that uh, on this station it's uh, definitely uh, possible. It is possible. I'm very happy to be doing this show and to be putting the spotlight on the Latino 
LGBTQ community. Now, we've been friends for a long time, I'm very proud to say, and we've talked about many, many things, but it was only recently that we started to talk about the LGBTQ issue in our community, and that came about because of that story Luis Valdez told me about the People's Bar. Do you remember the People's Bar? Oh, of course. The LGBT community was very much supportive of you and Cesar back when you first were starting the UFW. And in those most dangerous days, they would march right alongside you. We actually had a special button designed for our support LGBT community. And it was the Farmworker Eagle with the pink triangle. And actually, when we were on the boycott in 1968, many of our staff members were involved in the big marches that they had in the Stonewall marches back there in New York City. And uh, then over the years, uh, we always participated in the marches, gay pride marches here in West Hollywood and also in San Francisco. And it was wonderful because it would be great to see all the farm workers coming down with their flags. And, and I remember one farm worker saying to me in Spanish, Ay, señora Huerta, esta gente nos quiere mucho. In English, he said, Huerta, he said, these people really love us. And I said, yes, they do, and they're very supportive of us. And so the farm workers just marched with so much pride in the gay pride march so it was just wonderful to see that but getting back to the people's bar i was so amazed by that story according to luis it was a bar owned by a lesbian woman mm -hmm. uh, i believe mocha mm -hmm. and uh, after the marches and rallies and all that the campesinos and you and cesar would all go back and there'd be the gay community there hanging out at a lesbian bar i think that's a movie scene well it, it's more than that uh, mocha was actually uh, caesar's and helen chavez caesar's wife, uh, the comadre, because she baptized Caesar's oldest son, Fernando Chavez. And we had actually many of the strikers, we had a large component of uh, gays that were part of the farmworker movement. Uh, many of them worked at the De Giorgio Ranch, which is one of the big companies that we were striking at that time. In fact, they were the object of one of our big boycotts that we had. I know with the immigration issue, so I don't even know what to say, mm -hmm. such a hot-button issue. Mm -hmm. And for LGBT undocumented mm -hmm. men and women, that's an additional challenge. I mean, it's a whole other ball game for them yeah, when you're undocumented. And, yeah, and it's really bad because we have many of our LGBT community who have their partners or the people that they have married uh, who are undocumented, and they have a kind of a really, really big problem in terms of being able to fix their papers so that they can come over and join their spouses. So it is a very, very big issue, a very painful one. Painful, yes, that's the right word. And also uh, in terms of health, because if they're undocumented, they're afraid to go get tested for AIDS, and it's a domino effect in so many areas for the undocumented gay man or woman. Well, I think in terms of testing, uh, like we participate in that. One of my son-in-law's, Camilla's husband, he has, uh, uh, you know, been... Uh, but what we have done when we do the testing is we actually take it out to the street. This oh. is what we do in Kern County. We just don't wait for people to come to us. And we have a very active program there every single year to talk about the testing and do a lot of publicity Your around Your foundation? It. Yes. And we partner with other organizations to make this happen. But we don't wait for people to come to us. We go out there and look for them. Can we talk about Juanita? Yes, we can. Uh -huh. Well, I love Juanita. She's a pistol, that lady. Oh, she, she sure is. <laughs> Your daughter, Juanita Chavez. Mm -hmm. Did she come out to you early, or how did that all come about? I think after she graduated from San Francisco State College, then she let everybody know that she had a partner. So she lived with her partner for a few years. Uh, her partner eventually transitioned, 
and became a man. <laughs> She's very active, and she calls herself an out and proud member of the LGBTQ community. She was a teacher for a good many right. years, mm -hmm. and she co-founded the first gay-straight alliance at Mission High School, where she went. Was that in Bakersfield? Where no, was that was it? in San Francisco, right there in the oh, Mission. On the Mission she, District. Yeah, she lived in San Francisco when she graduated from San Francisco State. Her first teaching job was at Mission High School, and she did more than that. Uh, she also created a clinic there and provided counseling services for the LGBT youth that were there at Mission High School. She's currently the communications and media coordinator for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Yes. Um, this is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to my very special guest, Dolores Huerta. It's like you're going to go on forever doing this. It's such a marvel to see and how you embrace so many of these, I don't know, I hate to call them causes, but I don't know what else to call well, them, and how they intersect each other. Right. Well, it's a human rights agenda, you know. Yes. It's, it's about human rights. Yes, that's it's the basic, a, that's the what, bottom what it's line. All about. And I was very fortunate, you know, I knew Harvey Milk. We campaigned for him when he ran for the Board of Supervisors. He was a very good friend of Caesar's and a good friend of Richard Chavez, Juanita's dad. So it's always been a very, very strong connection. People sometimes ask me, where did this evolve from? I said, well, I don't know. It's always been there. I can't ever remember a time when I remember going to Mexico when I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. And it was really interesting there because there were some gay waiters in this restaurant. And my stepfather was from Mexico City. And he said in Spanish, estos son los Luisitos. He said, those are, they call them Luis. And I said, what is that? What is that? He said, these are gay men. And he said, everybody has to protect them to make sure they're not harmed. And I thought, oh, that's such a beautiful sentiment. My stepfather was born in Mexico City, grew up in Mexico City. He was kind of from the middle class. And it's interesting, and then we saw how that changed later on. I really don't know the history there. I guess somebody from Mexico could say that. It may have been when, and I don't know when Fox became president or wherever, when they kind of reconnected with the Catholic Church again. So I don't know, but something happened there from the time I was 17. And of course, later on, we saw a lot of discrimination in Mexico. But it's interesting, too, that the Oaxacans, you know, they have a very different take on gender. There's a third gender, and the third gender are people that are very sacred, actually. And uh, they have a wonderful celebration here in Los Angeles. I think it's called Los Mochis. And uh, people dress up like uh, in the Tijuana, which is as part of the Tijuanas, uh, these beautiful, beautiful costumes where they have the huge lace bonnets and these beautiful embroidered uh, costumes with these huge embroidered skirts. And uh, they have a beautiful celebration uh, here in Los Angeles. And they uh, every year they elect a queen. And it is a person from the third gender that is the queen. It's a beautiful celebration. I wasn't able to go this last year, uh, but the year before last, and you had the uh, Mexican consulate was there, and all of the local city officials were there. I think that there's a movie about this, and maybe we can have some of the folks that organize this beautiful yes, event. Yes, I would love. I, I never knew event. about this. Yeah, well, it, well, in Oaxaca, it happens every year. But now in Los Angeles, they've been doing it for a few years. Well, it sounds like the Native Americans here in what is now the United States, because they also revered, they were called two spirits. Right. And they revered exactly. them, and it was like they were special, exactly. you know, because they understood the two worlds. Mm -hmm. Wow. In Mexico City, going back a little bit, and now, of course, uh, gay marriage has been legal there for a good many years, and their gay pride... It's no longer the F, it's now Ciudad de Mexico, right? It's huge. They have a huge gay pride uh, celebration there. So it has evolved there, which mm -hmm. is fascinating to me, you know. We're getting some external noises because we are at the Catalina Bar and Grill 
where Dolores Huerta has just been honored by KPFK, and for good reason. You've spoken very highly of KPFK, how it was the only voice in the early days of the movement. Yes, absolutely, and this is uh, such an incredible, incredible radio station. And what I love is when we think of the many years now that this has been celebrated, this organization. I remember when it was first started, because I am, as you know, 87 years old now, so I was just lucky to be alive when so many of these great things were just beginning, like the uh, radio station, and uh, knew some of the first pioneers that started the radio station. I was very lucky to know some of them. And uh, to know this, it's still here. And, and you people, are too. And Yes, I'm <laughs> lucky to be here, and the, but the people are still supporting KPFK and KPFA. You know who personifies the whole issue of undocumented people who are of the LGBT community is Jose Antonio Vargas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know about him. He was born in the Philippines, mm -hmm. and he, it wasn't until he was about 16 that he found out he was undocumented, mm -hmm. and he's a gay man. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess he's got a book coming out, but he personifies that whole issue. Yeah, and Jose has been, as you know, very active all over the United States. He travels a lot, and... Uh, he has an organization called Define America, and his uh, organization tends to try to educate people on issues of the gay and lesbian transgender community, but also it very, very active just in terms of the dreamers. Have you worked together? Have you yes, met? we have. Yeah, Jose, uh, we have been working together. But in fact, this last year, he was very active on helping us out with the film also. The film Dolores, it was produced by Carlos Santana. Your documentary. Yeah, the documentary. Your documentary was fantastic. The film, Rosario Dawson playing you, I don't think so. But the documentary, I've seen it twice. It's incredible. How did you feel about it? I was really happy that uh, they found so much footage that I had never seen. And they touched on the issues, of course, of sexism, discrimination against women, the farm workers being victorious over Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, and Ronald Reagan. I want to just say a word about Ronald Reagan. Maybe some of our listeners are going to say, well, Ronald Reagan brought us amnesty. Uh-uh, that didn't happen. He signed the law. The ones who did the work on that amnesty bill was up Ted Kennedy, Schumer, who was now in the Senate. He was in the head of the Judiciary Committee, Howard Berman here in California, Peter Rodino. They were the, the main people. And myself, I'm going to include myself, because uh, one of the things that we're trying to do now is make, as women get credit for the work that we do, right? And I worked on the amnesty bill for months in Washington, D.C. to make sure that it passed. You know? And so just remember, Reagan is not all that great. But uh, the film, I think, is really great because it also touches on the issues of police brutality. It touches on ethnic studies, which we know in Arizona. And you and I were marching there in Arizona when they were doing all of that discrimination against the undocumented people and also uh, taking ethnic studies out of the schools, out of the high schools. Uh, as you may know, the state Supreme Court has now ruled uh, that they have to teach ethnic studies. So they lost that law that they passed. I did love that film so much, but I loved hearing from your children. Well, they're not children anymore, mm -hmm. but they're still your children, your babies, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. was uh, Juanita spoke, and I think Ricky, mm -hmm. and uh, it humanized you because mm -hmm. everyone knows you as the iconic figure that you are, mm -hmm. but you're a lady with family, and mm -hmm. it was beautiful to see that side. Mm -hmm. And Camila, who's the executive director of my foundation, she's the one that does all the work while I'm running around the country following the film around and doing speaking engagements. <laughs> your energy just 
just if I remember one time we were at some event and then I called you the next morning to I don't know what and you said oh I'm in Cleveland and I'm going to speak in a minute I'm thinking Cleveland we were in LA at 11 o'clock last <laughs> night and you were I don't know how you do it I honestly don't <laughs> well we try to cover as much as we can because we want to get the message out there about the dreamers we want to get the message out about we want people to be sure and vote and go out and knock on doors and phone bank and get themselves elected we're urging people yes run for the school board run for the city council uh, we've got to get progressive people to take over the power and of course uh, as we're talking about the issues of lgbt community these are some of the things that we have to really work hard on okay so we can end the homophobia in our community and in our society and i think we're on the way there we're not there yet but uh, we know we have to get everybody involved I mean, it's important to celebrate how far we've come, because we have. Yes. We have. And yet, the road ahead is very long and very treacherous. Mm -hmm. And we are currently in a back step, as mm -hmm. we all know. So, you know, when that first terrible election night, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, I'm going to lay low, let this thing blows over. I better not do Gaytino anymore, you know. And then when I came out of this shock a couple of days later, I thought, no, 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 no. This is a time not to retreat, but to really stand up and be louder than ever. And we all have to do that. We all have to do what you've been doing forever. You are literally a national treasure, and I treasure our friendship, and I thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me, Dan, and I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing because uh, you are also a long-distance runner and uh, carrying on the justice work uh, that your dad started uh, through his music and you through your art. And thank you very much for uh, producing the play Gaytino that I have seen twice and love it. And uh, urge everybody, if you haven't seen it, please, now it's time. And I understand that you're working on some other great projects. Thank you. <laughs> this is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I've been talking with a true American hero, Dolores Huerta. Until next time, ten orgullo, be proud. A reminder, Hispanic Heritage Month is Wednesday, September 15th, through October 15th. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Neil Schleifer. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, and if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder... We're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And we'd like to say goodbye to Disney legend Tommy Kirk, whose acting career was squashed by Walt Disney himself over gay rumors. He deserved so much better. I'm Neil Schleifer in New York. Thanks for listening. My mama told me when I was young that we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you she said, cause he made you perfect, babe 
So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way. Cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't be a drag, just be a queen 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 Give yourself prudence and love your friends Subway kid, rejoice your truth In the religion of the insecure Different lover is not a sin, believe, capital H, I am. Hey, 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 I love my life, I love this record, and me amo de I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way, don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and you're sad, I'm on the right track, baby, Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track And baby, I was born this way I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way, yeah.